Amen. And that will happen, by the way. And not because the pastor says it's time to worship, so say hallelujah. It will happen because you can't help it. It will be like at the end of the Super Bowl when Bill Forgione jumped out of his seat and screamed because the Patriots won. Is Bill? I saw Bill a minute ago. Anyway, he was the only one, I think. But, <laughs> but, it, but it will happen for all of us one day, and you, and you won't be able to help yourself. Hey, uh, I'm really excited this morning to have Andrew preaching. It's so great for me not to preach and to be preached to. Um, so uh, if you don't know Andrew, I think a lot of you know Andrew. This is Andrew Trawick. Andrew was part of our board at the very start of the sanctuary, and Andrew's been my friend for years and years, lived at my house in high school. And uh, Andrew is the father of four children, married to Anne. I think some of you know them. He has a, a business consulting with businesses, helping them to organize and manage their business better. Is that a way to say it? Consulting? Something like that? Telling people, tells people what to do? And uh, also, Andrew is an evangelist. So he travels uh, around the world in various capacities, preaching the gospel, and he's also like my best friend. So I'm really uh, grateful for Andrew to um, share the gospel with us this morning. So let's pray for him and pray for us. Okay? Can we do that? All right. So, Father, thank you so very much for Andrew. And, Lord, I thank you for his love for you and his delight in you and his dependence upon you. Lord, I pray that as Andrew preaches, he would be able uh, to ingest the words that uh, come out of his mouth, that they'd, they'd flow through him. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would uh, ingest them, that uh, Lord Jesus, um, you would preach through all of us and that the word, uh, Lord, would take root in our lives, the living word. Thank you that that is who you are, and I thank you for Andrew, and we pray that you would use him this morning in Jesus' name. We pray this, Father. Amen. Amen. A uh, number of years ago, I was down in Brazil, and we <clears throat> had a really interesting situation where the schools allowed us to come in and present the gospel in the public schools, which uh, the churches had already been pushed out of the schools in Brazil. But we had created this uh, program that prevented the spiritual solution to drug and alcohol abuse, which as long as we did the five minute beginning about drugs and alcohol, <laughs> they were happy for us to finish with the gospel. In fact, the program, uh, God really just opened the doors with what we were doing, and we were in school after school and had a list longer than we could fulfill. Well, the schools in Brazil are a little different than here because of budget. They'll build a school in a neighborhood, and in the morning, the elementary kids will go there, and then in the late morning, early afternoon, kind of middle school, and then the afternoon, the high school, and then at night, maybe high school again with adults that never went to school and the school's open for them. So we're speaking at all these time slots. And I had just finished the junior high one. <clears throat> and as you can imagine, you have to be a little different depending on the age group. But for the most part, the gospel is the gospel, which is regardless of who you are and what you've done, God designed you for one purpose, to have an eternal relationship with you. 
And he is after you, he is pursuing you, he is orchestrating life around you to draw you to himself so that you will spend now and eternity with him. He loves you. And he made that possible through Jesus. Well, at the end of these, <clears throat> a lot of kids would come up, and my Portuguese, Portuguese is horrible, and of course, they don't speak English, so we would play, in order to connect, we'd play the name game, which I would ask them their name in Portuguese, and then I'd tell them how you would pronounce that same name in English. So it would be, you know, what's your name? Marcos, uh, that's Mark, and then everybody would laugh, because it would just sound so funny to them. Well, there was one gal there, which I remember very well, uh, her name was Gabriella, and when, she, when I said, what's your name, Gabriella, I was like, I don't, I think that's just Gabriella in English. And she laughed, and the others laughed, and she was as cute as a button. I mean, one of those really just hyper cute, you want to squeeze kind of 12-year-old kids. And all the other kids started leaving, and she just stood there looking at me, smiling. And so it was just her and I there. I was sitting on the edge of the stage. And so finally I patted the side of the stage, say, well, come here and sit next to me. And she started doing it, and she goes, oh, un momento, un momento. And she took off running. And the, while she was gone, the English teacher came up to me and she said in her frustrated English, I, I'm the English teacher, but I didn't want to talk to you in front of the kids because I don't think my English is very good, and, and I know what she was saying. She was afraid she'd come up and say something in English with all the kids around, and I'd go, what? I don't, I don't know what you, what are you saying? And, but it was decent enough, we could have a conversation. And Gabriella came running back, and she opened her hand, and she had two pieces of hard candy in her hand. I, this uh, neighborhood that the school was in was right next to a favela. Favelas are uh, really hell on earth. They're run by drug lords. And to be in there, you're basically at the bid of the drug lord in whatever capacity that means. Uh, and there are thousands of people stacked on top of each other in these favelas. And favelas might war against each other at the bidding of the drug lord. Well, she lived in the favela. And when she opened her hand and saw the two pieces of candy, the English teacher said to me, this one is very poor. And the English teacher walked off. And I remember looking at that, and Gabrielle had a big smile holding it out to me. And I realized, you know, in my pocket, just spending money for the day, I had enough money to go to that poor excuse for a little school store and buy everything in there. I, I, I'm almost positive I could have. And I. I almost said to her, no, 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 you, you keep those. Those are for you. But something in me realized, I, I'm going to miss something, and I'm going to deny her something. And so I took one, put it in my mouth, and she took the other, put her mouth, she hopped up on the stage, and in a very Brazilian way, grabbed my arm and just put her head against my shoulder. And we just sat there with our hard candy. And in about five minutes, it was gone, and uh, she jumped down and looked at me with a huge smile and said, obrigada, 
which is thank you, and took off running, and I could see her disappear out into the street and back into the favela. The English teacher came up and she said, that, that's just amazing. I said, well, what's that? Well, she's usually so sad, and today she's just so happy. She, the message, the message this, that God loves her, that, I, that was so meaningful for her. You could just see it. You could see it. And I said, well, you know, I'm in my mind, I'm going, it was meaningful for me. This was kind of an eternal moment. There was something about that that I felt like, I think I just touched heaven for a minute there. And then the teacher said to me, it's so sad. I said, what's sad? Her, her father rapes her all the time. And I, I was speechless. I, I, the first thing that popped in my mind, I'll clean it up a little bit, was that effing bastard. Does he not see... Can he not see what I just saw? I think of Gabriella from time to time. That was almost 12 years ago. So she'd be 24 now. Uh, statistically, odds are she's a prostitute or in some form of that industry or dead. And I, I wonder, uh, God, why are we here? I mean, after we get saved, after we come to Christ, I mean, why, why leave us here? What, what's the point of this? I remember when I was young, uh, and I became a Christian fairly early, and when I was young, and people would say, well, Jesus is going to come back, and and I'd go, well, I don't want him to yet because I haven't had sex and I haven't, you know, had a house and I don't have a nice car yet. And, you know, all, all these things that I'm thinking, I, you know, I got to consume this world a little bit and at least have some happiness before I'm forced to go to heaven. And, and that's, that's kind of this, this sense because my idea of, well, I don't even know what we're going to do there anyway. Because apparently all the good things are off the list. So I, I, really, I, I really wondered, God, why do, why do we stay here? And now as I get older and you experience life and dreams die and things are frustrating and you start going, Jesus, it really would be great if you came back today and fixed everything. And by everything, I don't just mean outside of me. I mean, if you could come and fix me, that would just be amazing because I'm tired of me. I'm tired of trying to figure out how to make me better. I can't, I don't seem to be able to do it. No matter how many books I read or what, I can't get inside and change those points of desire to really want the right things and to hate the wrong things. I, I can't seem to do that, God, so you need to come back. But so far, here we, here we sit. So why are we here? Well, it's interesting. If, if you just ask people, what do you want in life? 
you probably already know the most common answer. Well, I just want to be happy. I want to be happy. And I do. And you do. We have a unique country in that in our, con in our declaration of independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Well, that, that word in there, we've, in the 21st century, it's kind of watered down from what they were describing because they were describing what Aristotle described as eudaimonia. And Aristotle had this, you know, he had the legacy of coming from Socrates and then Plato and then here's Aristotle forming ideas off of these just incredible thinkers. And he, he went through this process and he said, okay, uh, why do you go to work? Well, to make money. Why do you make money? Uh, to buy a place to live and food to eat. Why do you want a place to live and food to eat? And he'd keep asking the question until he got down to the same answer that everybody gave, which was, well, I, I want to be happy. And he, he defined happiness, and maybe the better term was joy, is, is joy. He defined it as this very elusive thing that if you were able to live an incredibly balanced life, not denying a whole bunch of stuff, but not living in exaggeration in a whole other part of your life, but being very balanced in moderation of how you lived and that you could achieve in moments this eudaimonia, this kind of contentment where you're at peace and you, you really are saying, you know, I, I, right now I just don't need anything more. I, I'm not looking to, to make this better. This is great, just like it is. And he's saying that, but it's very hard to attain. Well, Jesus said something. He said something in John, John 15. He said, I've come that my joy might be in you, and your joy might be full. And when I read that, I go, I don't think I'm a Christian. <laughs> because that's, I, there are moments, like Aristotle talks about, I go, well, there are moments where I hit this and moments where I experience it. But this idea of living in this full joy, what, that's just, that, that's not my experience. And it's certainly not the experience of somebody like Gabriella, I mean, is that the verse I quote to her? Well, I know, I know your life really is hell there, Gabriella, but let me quote you a good verse about being joyful. And the implication that we put on ourselves is, okay, if I work real hard, I guess I'll be joyful. Well, here's, here's my big problem. Um, I don't agree with science in the Bible a lot of the times. And you see, science and the Bible agree really well, but my experience doesn't agree with those two things. And, and here's what I mean. Uh, turn of last century, Heisenberg, in some of his experiments, he did this, it's called the slit experiment, where he was looking at light, and he realized, wow, when I look at it, it's something. When I don't look at it, it has an infinite possibilities of becoming something. 
I, I can know either where it is or what it is, but I can't know both. And he would go, after these experiments, they did them for years, they'd go across the street to a little coffee shop and they'd talk, well, what a coffee shop was in 1920s. They'd talk, he and his uh, lab partner, and they'd have discussions where they say, it, it, it appears that matter isn't really here like we think it's here. In fact, it could just disappear at any moment. It's like it's being sustained in some way that we don't know. And observation creates a particular presence of this matter, but it, the matter just pops in and out of existence. And as we come forward now to where we have uh, the Higgs field, and they're looking for the Bison-Hicks particle and trying to say, well, there's, there's some energy that we can't see that's behind everything that's actually making everything exist. And without that energy, nothing would exist. And if that field turned off, everything would disappear. And we're trying to find that particle to understand a little better. Well, here, here's something weird. You know, if you look, you look at these pews and you go, well, they're brown. And the reality is, no, they're every color but brown. Brown is what they're not because that's what's not absorbed by the light waves. So the nothing of it reflects back to you. And what it isn't is brown, so that's what you see. <laughs> Everything we see and touch isn't it. And yet we feel it and touch it and we go, it's it. We have these experiences and go, that is, that is it. Hebrews says something really fascinating to me, and it says, faith is the assurance of the things that you hope for. I mean, look in your own heart. What do you hope for? What are the deep things that you hope for? Faith is the assurance of those things. And the substance of the things you cannot see. Faith is the substance of the things you cannot see. Philosophers, have, the Greek word used there, in its general use in the day, meant the reality, the essence, the firmness, the groundness. It, it was the thing. Theologians over the years looked at Hebrews and said, well, that doesn't make sense because faith is this ethereal concept. I mean, we sit around and we talk, well, what is faith? What does it mean? Where do you get it? How does it grow? Uh, can you do something to make it big or make it go away? What, what, what is faith? And we have these kind of heady arguments, but it's not like, well, there's faith. I can feel it and touch it. And yet scripture is saying, no, no, the thing that is real is faith. The things that you feel and touch are the things that are all going to go away. And if you have a problem with the quantum physics side of it, look to the astrophysicists who say, hey, it's going to take a while, but guaranteed it's all going to burn. All of it. So whatever you mortalize, memorialize here, it will be gone at some point. 
And scripture, 2,000 years ago, is saying the same thing, but giving us an answer that science, science doesn't provide. And the answer is, you know what is going to, you know what the substance of reality is? There are three, three of them, and one of them is faith. Somehow, that is something that the reality of it, once you see it, it'll be like waking up from a dream, and this life will just seem silly and empty. And my guess is many of us here have already experienced the points where we go, this life is silly and empty. Well, why are we here? Why does, why does God keep us here? What, what is the purpose of our existence? I, I really believe, uh, you know, I, as I look at everybody here, one thing's very apparent to me, there's not two of you anywhere. I, I actually said that at one place, and I pointed to somebody, he said, well, I'm a twin. <laughs> I went, actually, there's even the better point. Even the same genetic code that gets split renders two very different people. A number of similarities, but very different people. There is no other you. That's it. And you know why that is? That's intentional. Because God desires a relationship with you that he cannot have with anybody else. And there's a value in you that is unduplicated anywhere else. And God cannot get that relationship with you from anyone else. As much as God loves Peter, he can't get the same relationship with Peter that he can with you. And so he's after you. He wants you. He desires you. This world is a world where God is building substance in us. And a lot of our problem is we don't believe it and we don't see it. But we want to believe this more than this idea of faith. But God is at work in you and Depending on who you are, you're, we're all different, so that's going to look different. You know, have you ever said, God, why does, why, does that, why does that person win the lottery? You know, why does that person get to be with that person? Why does that person get to have that job? I don't, I don't get it. Well, that's, that's that person. I, I loved when uh, one of the disciples was asking Jesus, well, what about him? And he goes, that's between me and him. I'm talking to you right now. And I think that's what God's saying. Don't, don't be looking around. I'm talking to you. The faith that God is building in you, because you're unique and different, requires a road that looks very different than anyone else. And God is determined. God is so committed to building substance in you that he's going to do it, even if you're kicking and screaming. You know, I, I have four kids. They're a lot older now, but when they were younger, 
I realized very quickly if I gave them everything they wanted, they kind of became little brats. Have you noticed that about kids that get everything they want? They're just kind of think now they're entitled to everything. One of the problems we face as Americans in this culture is we believe we're entitled to everything. We we just we're grown up told we're entitled to stuff. And so when we don't get it, we're kind of ticked off. There are three things God wants to build in you. Remember 1 Corinthians uh, 13? Goes through this beautiful, it's a great Valentine's Day verse, right? Set of verses. And at the end he says, well, actually, everything's going to go away. All, all these gifts of knowledge and all that, everything's going to go away. But there are going to be three things that are eternal, that remain forever, that are the substance of eternity. They are faith, Oh, you, you, some of you have read the Bible. That, that's good to know. Faith, hope, and love. Those three things will exist forever. And God is committed to build those in you. And for some of us, it, it means a minute of living in this world and then we're done. For others, it means 120 years living in this world. For some, it means living in America in a big house with a car and a job. For others, it means living in a little hut in Africa. And I'm not saying if you have an opportunity to better your life, don't better your life. That, you know, that's, that's kind of a Hindu philosophy or Buddhist philosophy. This is your lot. Don't try to change it. Don't go against karma. I'm not saying that at all. In fact... The Bible calls you, if you're able to help your neighbor, you need to stand up and help them. But God is at work in us. But I don't like his work. Because I want a nicer car. I want more money. I, I want things different. So, so, what do I do with that? What do I say to him about that? What do I say to Gabriella? I remember I had a good friend from Nepal. He was a pastor in a little village, very poor village, no running water, no electricity. And he was flown out here to participate in the board meeting with the ministry group I was associated with a number of years ago. And in that, uh, that time there, he took me aside and he said, Andrew, I have a, uh, have a question for you. There's something about Americans that, that is really confusing me. And I said, well, yeah, what, what is that? Tell me. He said, well, I go to some of these people's houses and in their kitchen, they have more food than I have in my whole village. I said, okay. And he said, and then we'll go to the stores, and there are these huge stores filled with all kinds of amazing things, some things I've never seen in my life. And I said, so do you think it's wrong that Americans have that and you don't? And he goes, no, 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 no. I, I would like that for my village. I'd like to figure out how we can have that for my village. But that's not my problem. Here's my problem. 
Why do Americans complain so much? I said, well, tell me what you mean. I had a pretty good idea. Uh, he said, well, like I'm staying at somebody's house and they'll look in their cabinet and they'll get all upset that they don't have a particular can of something or a spice and then we'll have to go to the store and they'll complain about the drive to the store, how long it is, and then we'll park and they'll complain about how hot it is to walk to the store and then we get in and they complain about how cold the store is and then <laughs> how the brand they want, do brands matter, Andrew? And isn't there, and, and the first thing I realized is, I am really glad you're not staying at my house. Uh, <laughs> because you'd be having this conversation with somebody else. But also just very embarrassed because I go, yeah, that's, that's me. That's me. That's me on a good day. This kind of constant, oh, I had in my mind what it could be and it's not and okay, we'll fix it. And, And yet, in that group, he consistently was the most content and joyful of those among us. And you know, you want to say, well, what are you taking? <laughs> Over almost a fourth of Americans are on some sort of antidepressant. I, I, I'm not saying it's bad because we, we had found that there are really chemical imbalances and there are some incredible drugs that can create a balance. So it's an amazing thing. But there's something that we've done to ourselves to create such a frustration in this life. And I think we're blinding ourselves. You know, God says he's given each one of us a measure of faith. Scripture tells us that in you he has planted faith. And it's amazing to me because you know where I tend to put my faith? I, I, I will, it's real easy to put my faith in money or in a nice new thing or in a going to a different place. It's really easy to put my faith there but that's not what God's talking about. He's not talking about consuming the creation. He's talking about living with the creator, letting God build that seed that he put in each of us and allowing you to exercise that so your faith grows and the substance of it touches eternity. You know, it would be a mistake to think that what you do here doesn't matter because it has a profound difference. There's, there's some sort of eternal impact. In fact, it, it looks this way. When, when we reach out to each other and in love and in faith and instilling hope in one another, we, we send something. We start a, a, a fracture through eternity that's unstoppable, that we won't even see. It's like we're looking at the back of a tapestry and we'll see the other side, but there is this 
need in us to consume the creation, and we spend so much time going after things that will just be gone. Well, how do we, how do we be happy? Jesus said, your joy is going to be fulfilled, and yet he's committed to building faith, and to build faith, I mean, you know, do the math. To build faith means I can't, you can't know everything, you can't see everything, you can't get everything you want. I mean, that, if that happened, there's no building of faith in you. So the, the whole idea of building, in, uh, building faith requires a system that does just that. Many times I look at this one, I go, this is insanely broken and horrible, and it doesn't work. And on a lot of levels, it doesn't. But then on another level, it works really well for what God's trying to do in each of us. We, uh, I work with executives who run companies, and I try to, I work with them to create a culture in which their employees want to come and work in. And one of the biggest things they face is this kind of disgruntledness among employees, but most of that is created by those in charge. And, and they don't realize the, the power they have to create a culture that people would enjoy more. There's one individual that uh, I got with, and he had just written a book, and part of what he was uh, struggling with in his life is he had a very wealthy father-in-law who gave him $250 million to build a company, which he did, and which he buried into the ground. And uh, to lose $250 million of your father-in-law's money is, uh, is a conversation you don't want to have. <clears throat> and he, in, in the first chapter of his book, he recounts how he was at a hotel and he stepped in the elevator and he was going, okay, do I push 22 and go to the roof and jump off, or do I push L and go down and meet the guy who's waiting for me? I, 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 have you been in that place? Do you, do, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Where you go, it's, it's not worth it anymore. It's just, just not. Well, he did push L, and in his pursuit of trying to go, where does happiness lie? Because it doesn't lie in money. It does, you know, we, there's so many things. I, you know, I love the, the phrase, you know, but by the grace of God, there go I. And I'm going, you know what? I, I get it. But I don't want my happiness to be dependent on somebody else's misery. Right? I don't want to look at some homeless guy on the corner of a street and go, oh, now I'm happy. I, I, that's not, I, in fact, I don't want my happiness to be dependent on any external. I, I, I want a kind of happiness that no matter what's happening out there, in here, there's joy. And Jesus said he was going to give that to me. He said he was going to give it to you. So what do we do? Well, I think one thing Jesus is trying to say is, well, first of all, recognize what I'm doing with you. That 
It's not that I don't see you. I see you really well. It's not that I don't understand you. I understand you more than you understand yourself. It's not that I don't care. I care more than anyone you've ever met has ever cared about you. But Jesus, this really, I am not enjoying this. Yeah, I know. I know. But I've come that your joy may be full. One of the exercises, uh, this guy had a career coach, and one of the exercises the career coach had him do was, he said, take a clicker, and every 15 minutes, so at the end of a 16-hour day, uh, you need to show 64 on your clicker. Every 15 minutes, you need to be thankful for something. It can just be something silly. Just ridiculous. Yeah, I'm thankful I have a seat to sit in. Thankful my tires have tread. I'm thankful that uh, I got to eat something. And, and he said at first, I said, well, what was that like for you? He said at first it was ridiculous. I, I felt silly because, I didn't, one, it didn't feel honest. And two, I'd look at my tires and go, well, yeah, I bought tires with tread on them. Why wouldn't they have tread on them? And he said, but as this happened, I, I noticed it went from something mechanical to something like I was opening a door up inside of me. Like, like I was allowing something to take place that wasn't there before. This idea of being thankful. You know who uh, gave me joy? Was Gabriella. And she did it in the most unusual way, unable to speak the language, by giving me one hard piece of candy and sitting next to me for five minutes, holding my arm. It's an experience I keep going back and I go, that's a, she created something eternal in that moment. And how did she do it? By being thankful and by giving. This, this, this is an interesting meal, right, that, that we take. It was, Jesus was celebrating this, and um, it was Passover when he was doing it. Passover, by the time Jesus' day, Passover had become a very elaborate multi-day feast, and Jesus was celebrating one of the key points in that, and it was interesting because for almost a thousand years, they looked at this as a, wow, here, here's the feast that celebrates our liberation from our slavery, from how the Egyptians enslaved us, and now we're free. And Jesus basically took the meal and he said, that's not what it was about. That was an, that was an illustration for you to see the truth. And here's the truth. I am this bread. I'm the bread. I am this wine. It's my blood. And I've come to free you from something that nothing can free you from. And that's you. The bondage that you put yourself in, 
I've come to free you from that, from the bondage of your sin that turns into addiction, your bondage of sin that blinds you to faith, your bondage of sin that pronounces judgment on you. I've come to free you and to give you an eternal freedom that nothing, nowhere can compare. I've come to do that. When uh, there was a man who came to Jesus, his son was possessed by a demon, and the disciples tried to cast it out, and Jesus finally showed up, and they said, look, your disciples can't cast out this demon, and he asked the father, hey, how long has this been going on? How, how long has this boy been like this? And the father with shame said, well, since he was a boy. Because you see, in those days, they believed if your son had a problem, it was because of your sin, because of something you did. And so the father, in desperation, said to Jesus, because he knew Jesus was a great prophet and, and had great power, and he said, Jesus, if, if you can do anything, please do it. And I don't think it was a question of power. I think it was a question he had of rules. Look, I, I know I've done stuff. I don't even know what it is, but I can see my son is in such agony, and I, I just, I don't know, can you? I mean, can, is there some way to get around the rules, Jesus? Can you maybe talk to God and get him to let you fix this? And Jesus looked at him and said, what are you saying? If I can, don't you know I can do all things? And I think right there that man realized, I'm not talking to a prophet, I'm talking to God. And he fell on his knees and said, oh Jesus, I do believe. Help these parts of me that don't believe. Help these parts of me that are stuck in shame and, and, and can only see judgment coming from the Father. That's all I can see. Help my unbelief to believe that you would want to do this. And Jesus healed his son. That's not some magic formula, but it is the heart of God. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, this is when he was doing Passover with his disciples on that evening when all his closest friends were gonna walk away from him, deny him. That's when he took the bread and he broke it and he said, let me tell you what this is really about. This is my body and my body's gonna be broken. This bread that you've been eating to sustain you, I want you to eat eat my flesh. You see, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the judgment in my body that was meant for you. I'll take it, and I'm about to take it. And here's the amazing thing. You know what we call this? This whole set here, it's the Eucharist. You know what that means? Thanksgiving. Jesus, in thankfulness, he gave thanks he allowed himself to give thanks for what was about to happen to him. Thankfulness creates a humility that opens your eyes to things that 
you cannot see when you're demanding. Well, in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this, this is, you've been thinking this is wine? It's actually my blood. Leviticus says there's life in the blood. And he said, this is my blood, my life poured out for you, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take my life. Drink this. Don't stop drinking the creation. There's no life there. There's only death there. It's all going to go away. It's only pointing you to something real. It's not the real thing. This is the real thing, the real life. Come and take my blood, drink it into you. Let my life flow through you. And he said, look, whenever you eat and drink, remember me. Remember this. Well, we don't, we don't celebrate Passover, most of us anymore. We celebrate now communion. And so what are we communing over? We're communing over that there's a God who loves us so much that seeks an individual relationship with you that he cannot have with anyone else and he's so committed to you, he's gonna walk you down a road that builds eternal things of faith, hope, and love in you and your freedom lies in the simplest thing of being thankful to him for all of it. So come, let's commune with him, come. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have conquered death. You are the word of the creator and you do not return void, but you accomplish that for which you were sent. Thank you. Amen. And so in the beginning, God said, let us make man, let us make woman in our own image. And God is love. And you're being made in the image of love. And you're being filled with faith, hope, and love, which are not your own creation. And so may you be grateful. Because the moment that you're grateful, you walk out of illusion and you walk into reality. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel and live. Amen.